Well, hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week we're doing an archive show. This is a Boomer Boulevard show, first broadcast back on the 3rd of July in 2017. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Chester. I'm ready whenever you are, Mr. Dillon. All right, let's go. Chester, you have all the shows ready to go? All lined up? Good deal. Good deal. Hello, everybody. Hi, this is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is our old-time radio show and podcast where we play programs, old-time radio programs, that you will actually remember from when you were a kid, if you're a baby boomer. Because many of these shows were on in the late 50s in the early 60s. Now some of them we remember from television because they later uh, came out as television shows. But we still prefer the radio programs, the originals. And we've got a great lineup tonight just to illustrate that point. We have an Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Very good. We have a very funny episode of Our Miss Brooks. And we're going to finish things up as we always do on the streets of Dodge City, Kansas with a really wonderful episode of Gunsmoke. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So we're so happy to have you along. Why don't you grab a seat, make yourselves comfortable, perhaps uh, make a little drink there, get a little snack, and and, uh, maybe if you're with your honey, you might just want to cuddle up because we're going to get started in just a moment. Well, 
Welcome, welcome, welcome. Glad to have you along. Beautiful weather here in St. Louis. I don't know what it's like where you are, but boy, we're just having a just a great, great summer so far. Listen, before we get started, I received several emails this week. I'm going to try to read two of them tonight, and I've answered the rest of uh, of the emails I received uh, uh, back to the folks at Cinema, and I sure appreciate it. I can't tell you how much your emails mean to me, and if you want to send me one, just send it at, to bob at boomerboulevard.com, and I will get it, and I will answer it. But here's one we received from Archie L., who lives in Las Vegas, Nevada, and he said, Dear Bob, love your show and so glad you have it on podcast now so I can pull it up to listen to any time. I love the way you introduce each program with its own theme. That is so classy. Well, thank you very much. I tried to differentiate the show from other old-time radio shows by giving a little class, if you would. What's that, Chester? Well, okay. In all fairness, Chester put a number of those together, so. I don't know what to think. At any rate, having said that, Archie goes on, he says, I am a huge fan of the old detective programs you call Radio Noir. My favorite is Gerald Moore as Philip Marlowe. I was just wondering if you shouldn't give Philip Marlowe his own theme music instead of sharing the same Radio Noir theme you play for your other detective shows. Hope this email finds you well. Yours truly, Archie L. in Las Vegas, Nevada. Well, thank you, Archie, and that's a great idea. You know, I went in and tried to find uh, a recording, uh, uh, you know, like from a major artist back in the early 50s of the Philip Marlowe theme, you know, someone like Percy Faith or someone like that, and I, I really just couldn't find anything. But what I did find was the theme from the Philip Marlowe movie that featured Robert Mitchum that was entitled Farewell, My Lovely. And it's pretty good. And it definitely sounds like Radio Noir.
That's pretty cool music, huh? That is the theme song from Farewell My Lovely, the Philip Marlowe motion picture that featured Robert Mitchum that came out, I believe it was 1975. But we have a great radio adaptation of a Philip Marlowe story. And this one was originally broadcast on CBS back on the 22nd of January in 1949. It features Gerald Moore as our title character, Philip Marlowe. It also has Ed Bagley, one of the great stage actors and uh, motion picture stars from that era. Also, it has Jeff Corey, Tony Barrett, and Lou Krugman, among others. And in this time, Philip Marlowe is handling a case involving the orange dog. Here it comes. A startled corpse, a blue-eyed woman, and a cryptic message scrawled by a dying man with the pieces of a Chinese puzzle that wouldn't fit together until I found out what was deadly about the orange dog. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Orange Dog. By six in the evening of a very slow day, I'd resigned myself to the business of no business. So I took my feet down from my desk switched off the lights and started out the door for home with the prospect of a nice, quiet evening ahead of me. But I didn't make it, even as far as the door. Oh. Hello, Philip Marlowe. Marlowe, my name is Shelley Martin. I'm at 8412 Los Feliz, a private residence. I want you to come out here right away. My sister is in a jam, a nasty one. Well, Miss Martin, as a matter of fact, I was just closing up for the night. Look, you... I need the services of a private detective right now this minute. And I'm prepared to pay for them. There are plenty of others in town. Are you coming or not? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. And thanks for the reminder. That's me you hear sprinting up your front walk. That's much better. And Marlowe, bring your brains along. You're going to need them. And that was the end of my quiet evening. But I just couldn't resist those government engravings of Mr. Lincoln. So I drove down to Weston, turned off on Los Feliz, and found the number 8412. The yard was an overgrown tangle of perennial plants losing their battle with the weeds. <laughs> it was like a girl in a strapless evening gown with her hair up in curlers. However, I could see a light through the Venetian blinds, and the doorbell worked with a resonant two-tone chime that caused the door to open just far enough to... Allow a pair of eyes so blue they were almost purple to peek out at me. Yes, what is it? I, uh, I'm delivering that private detective you ordered. Oh, Marlowe, come in. Thanks. Sit down, won't you? Thanks again. All right, what's the next move? It's about my kid sister. Mm-hmm. She's involved with a man named Lou Horner, a San Francisco broker. She's quite deeply involved, I'm afraid. Oh? You see... 
Some very strange things are going on, Marlowe, and my sister is a naive kid caught right in the middle of them. Yeah, I see. What sort of strange things, Miss Martin? Shelley. Sweet. Well, to begin with, when I arrived from San Francisco today, my sister called me and asked me to meet her here in this house. When I got here, the lights were on, the radio was playing, and the front door was open. But the place was deserted. Whose house is it, Horner's? No, I think she said it belongs to a friend of his who's in Europe now. This Horner person uses it when he's in Los Angeles. Well, couldn't they have stepped out for a while? Mm -mm. You know, you don't look the type, Shelley, but maybe you're just panicky, huh? No, I'm not being panicky. All right, all right. Where's the nasty jam? Right behind the couch. Take a look. Okay. But you know, I... Oh, I see what you mean. Who is he, Shelley? How'd he get here? Maybe it's Horner. I don't know. I tried to search him, but I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Well, it wouldn't have helped anyway. Whoever shot him cleaned him out. No wallet, no papers, nothing. I found this magazine lying under his hand. Look here. Mm-hmm. He must have written this just before he died. Where's that? Here. Oh, it says, call Marion tonight about the orange dog, a foe. Orange dog, a foe. For what? That's why I called you, Phil. Marion is my sister. And whatever the orange dog of foe is, it must be awfully important. We've got to find out what it means, Phil, for Marion's sake. So far, it means murder, honey, and that's for the cops. No. I... Well, all right, call them. But keep Marion's name out of it. A thing like this could destroy her. But look, maybe she pulled the trigger on our friend here. Maybe, you know? but I don't think so. She's a sweet kid, Phil. Give her a break. If I'm wrong, I swear I'll help you bring her in myself. Is that fair enough? Okay, Shelley, it's a deal. It makes just as much sense as the orange dog of foe, but no more. After I checked as far as I could on my client and sent her home, which was to the Villa 12 at the Wilshire Gardens Hotel, I ripped the general squeegee tire ad with a message scribbled across it out of the magazine, folded it up and stuck it in my pocket. Next, I called Lieutenant Ibarra at Homicide and told him where I'd found a body... Probably named Lou Horner, leaving out all the details about Shelley, Marion, and the orange dog. Then I started out the door, but got back as a shadow slid across the walk. I caught a glimpse of a large, ugly head of long, dirty hair set on a small, ugly body that was moving fast. By the time I got out on the walk, long hair was already putting mileage on a green coupe with a broken taillight. It winked mockingly as it went out of sight. So I got in my car and headed for New Chinatown. It was the logical place to get some information regarding a Chinese dog. I saw a light filtering through a dingy window, illuminating the words James Tang, dealer in Oriental Curios. Inside the musty shop, a little man, dressed in a black kimono, drifted forward softly. Yes? I, uh, uh think perhaps you can help me, huh? I am honored. To be able to help would bring... Fragrance of plum blossoms to my nostrils, carpet of rose petals to my humble floor, and thousand blessings upon my head. Oh, that's very pretty. Tell me, what is the dog of foe? The dog of foe? Why? Why this? This fantastic creature here is called the dog of foe. His fierce eyes and snarling mouth are to frighten away evil spirits from temples of Buddha. Why do you say called the dog of foe? Amateur collectors and auctioneers have named him that. It sounds exotic to cash customers. Actually, he is a lion. The lion of Korea. I see. Tang, would you happen to have an orange dog of foe? 
very strange that you should ask that, my friend. Strange why? Reason number one. There is no authentic orange dog or folk. That's a good reason. Why not? Because to Buddhists, orange is color of sorrow. The piece you speak of could not possibly be authentic. What's reason number two? You are second person to inquire after this non-existent orange dog or folk within the last few minutes. Was it an ugly little man with long hair? Quite contrary. It was very pretty girl with short hair. Was her name Marion? She made point of not leaving her name. Now, it proves something. However, my friend, old Chinese proverb, loosely translated, says, a little knowledge is the instrument of a fool. nine other curio shops in the neighborhood, so I started making the rounds for the non-existent orange dog of foe and a girl who was interested in one. From the first three shops, I got a fast horse laugh and the fact that the girl was still ahead of me. The next two netted an insult apiece and a total blank on the dame. And from the sixth called Saxons, a glossy, well-ordered place on West 7th Street, the only effect was a coldly curious raised eyebrow. The man in front of me, whom I took to be Mr. Saxon himself, was a gaunt, white Russian with a high, naked head the color of warm paraffin. His slender fingers played nervously with each other as we talked. The orange dog of four. Yes, I have heard of such a piece. I think it would be porcelain. Probably. This is your business. Who has it, Mr. Saxon? Can you tell me? No, no, I'm sorry. I believe I heard this orange dog mentioned just once somewhere down in the village. But I'm sure I could never remember who spoke of it or when. Oh, no idea of its value then, huh? Now that you mention it, I seem to remember the figure 20,000. You mean yen? How much in American money? I'm speaking of American money. It would be an importation from China, you know. How could it be worth that much? It's not even authentic, Mr. Saxon. Authentic? <laughs> you seem to know a good deal more than I about this orange dog. Possibly one would have to see it to appreciate its value. Yeah. Tell me, has a girl been in here tonight looking for this orange dog? A girl? I know. Know anybody named Marion? Marion. Marion. No, there is no one in my acquaintance by that name. But why do you ask? Because Marion has quite an interest in the orange dog. I have a feeling they'd make a great team if we could get them together. I see. And what is your name, sir? It's not Fu Manchu, Mr. Saxon. Good night. Saxon's expression didn't change. I turned and walked out of the place, and then because with both of us using double talk, the conversation was bound to deteriorate. At least I had found out that the orange dog of foe existed. It was going for a very high figure, especially for a phony. And it didn't take an abacus to figure out that Saxon knew more than he told me. Well, I started up the sidewalk for the next bric-a-brac emporium when I saw something parked on the side street which brought me to a halt. It was that green coupe with the broken taillight. I went over to it, found it empty, and stuck my head inside to check the registration card for Longhair's real name. Yeah, it was a very foolish move because Longhair at that very moment prodded my kidney with the muzzle of a thirty-eight. And neither he nor the gun had a sense of humor. All right, Mr. Wise Guy, come on, walk. You and me are gone up the alley here. What's the matter? Don't you feel at home in the light? Shut up. I don't like you much anyway, so you better ease off with the smart science. Okay, this will do us far enough. Well, Mr. Wise Guy, did you find what you're looking for? You mean the orange dog, Shorty? The answer's no. The orange dog? So that's where the plates are. What plates? You're working for Horner. You don't know what plates. Look, chum, when you get your next haircut, have your brains dusted off. 
Nobody works for Horner anymore. Horner's dead. Dead? Since when? What's the surprise act for? You saw the body. You were sneaking around that house on Los Feliz. In fact, you might have killed Horner yourself. That body wasn't Horner. Why, Horner's three times the size of that guy on Los Feliz. He's bald. Also, he's so dumb he can't remember his own phone number. Oh, hold it. I'm looking for Vera Street where they throw those insulin. I'm sorry, gentlemen. I don't want to intrude. Hey, quiet. I'll blow your brains out. All right, now, come on, Mr. Wise Guy. Tell me what Horner's got on his mind. You know all right. I saw you taking orders from his girl. You mean Shelley Martin? Who else? Thought maybe you meant Marion. Marion? Who's Marion? Shelley Martin's sister. And don't let her worry you. Marion's got the orange dog eating out of her hand. I don't say. It ain't funny, mister. It's just peculiar. Because Shelley Martin don't have a sister, I know. So it seems like you're a very mixed-up character. In fact, Mr. Wise Guy, you're so mixed up, you're no good to me at all. So get over there with the rest of that. Oh! I took my time getting up. The dirty, long-haired little man was gone, and my headache from the rap had given me with a pistol barrel. And I was disgusted with myself. Dry, dirty, disgusted like a drunk at sunrise because a nasty little jerk with an oversized head and a blue-eyed dynamo with auburn hair had me jumping through hoops like a trained ape. I stood in the alley and swore at myself until the futility of that routine dawned on me. Then I decided to go hunting. But I made one stop first at a telephone to at least get Ibarra off my conscience. Hello, Lieutenant. I just found out that body on Los Feliz isn't Horner. I knew that an hour ago. Huh? The body isn't Horner, isn't Horner, is no broke. He's a counterfeiter, a big one. No. The dead man was a treasury agent named Slade who was closing in on Horner. So if you've got anything you haven't told, Phil, you better get it off your chest. At this point, it's a pleasure. A girl named Shelley Martin's calling the signals about now, and she can be found at Villa 12, Wilshire Gardens Hotel. Mm-hmm. You hurry, you'll just about meet me there, Ibarra. Now, wait. Suppose you go along and find out what you can first. That's a switch. I'll follow in half an hour. Let's not freeze her up, Marlowe. Let's keep her talking, okay? Okay, Barra. That's easy for her. She's got a forked tongue. Only this time it's going to wag strictly on the straight and narrow. I guarantee it. When I pointed my car toward the Wilshire Gardens and a beautiful liar named Shelley Martin, I was sure of two things. The plates that Longhair had wisecracked about just before he piled me into a row of garbage cans were the engraved kind that counterfeiters used to make money the easy way. And second, both Longhair and Lou Horner were racing for the plates as well as the orange dog, which could be one and the same thing. But 20 minutes later, as I pulled up near Villa 12, which was strips of yellow light and raised voices drifting out of half-open Venetian blinds, I forgot about the gentleman involved and concentrated on a lady who didn't have a sister called Marion. I went around to the back of the villa where I found the service door unlocked and the kitchen beyond dark. And when I entered and quietly moved to a spot near the living room where I could see Shelley snapping at a pompous, excitable man with a red face, I figured that a little eavesdropping might pay off. I'm here in Los Angeles. Is there anything wrong with that, Mr. Horner? Yes, everything. Why, I wouldn't even have known you were in town if I hadn't gone back to the place in Los Feliz where I saw you and some man having a delightful little chit-chat over the body of that tea man. Treasury man? Yes. Is that who he was? A meddlesome fool I caught snooping through my papers. Then... Then you killed him, Lou. Of course I killed him. I had to. Now stop asking questions and get out of here. 
because this is business, not pleasure, Shelley. And that leaves no room for you. Or Marion. What do you know about Marion? Not enough. But what I do know, I don't like. Look, Lou, who is Marion and what does she mean to you? Marion means money to me, Shelley. Nothing more. So just leave me alone here so that I can make a call according to schedule. A call about... Lou. What's the matter, Shelley? Behind you, Lou. They're in the garden. Lou! The crash through a closed window didn't stop until it got the Horner who grabbed at his chest and dropped to the floor even before the glass quit flying. And by the time I got outside to where the shot had come from, I found nothing but a little wind rustling a lot of trees. When I got back to Shelley and the blood of a tweet on the carpet, Horner was already dead. Marlowe. Follow the man out there was Henry Peel. Peel? Something in long hair and dirty clothes? Yes, I met him in Horner's office once. Lou said he was a broker from Chicago. Come on, both Peel and Horner are counterfeiters. What? Lou, a counterfeiter? That's right. Never mind the carefully arched eyebrows, honey. They mean nothing. But, Marlowe, I swear I never knew that Horner was anything but a broker. A broker maltreating poor sister Marion? You're a liar, Shelley. About Marion, yes. I haven't even got a sister. But from there on out, I'm telling the truth, Phil. Then tell some more and fast. All right, here it is. Lou Horner's been my boyfriend. And, uh, checkbook? For the past year and a half. But about a month ago, he suddenly stopped being very attentive. And I couldn't figure out why. So you decided to keep your big blue eyes wide open, huh? Exactly. And it paid off. Because I found out that, one, he had taken better than $20,000 out of his bank account. Two, that he was coming down here to Los Angeles. And three, that an item named Marion might be beating your time. Yes. And that part of it upset me plenty. Until ten minutes ago. But then I found out that Horner here was a murderer. And that, Marlowe, I don't buy. Three cheers for the all-American girl. Oh, skip it, Marlowe. I'll live my way. You live yours. Don't worry, honey. Nobody wants to change places with you. Hey. Hey, look. Why does Horner wear a little rubber band on his little finger, do you know? Oh, he had a bad memory. Used every kind of gadget in the books to keep himself from forgetting things, especially numbers. Oh. Oh, for example... That rubber band might mean oh, 10 o'clock. How do you figure? Like five and five. The fingers on each hand reading from left to right. He used things like that. Oh. Wait a minute. Hmm? Horner was going to make a call to Marion just now, and the message the tea man left was... Call Marion tonight about... About the orange dog of foe. Shelly, baby, where's your phone? Fast. Come on, it's quarter after ten already. Well, it's out there in the hall, Marlon. Oh. Well, what are you talking about? A line, honey, a line on your ex-sister, Marion. Ah, uh, Lou Horner, Mr. Saxon. I, I, I know I'm some 15 minutes late with this call, but I'd still like to see you about the orange dog of foe. Certainly, Mr. Horner. The orange dog is here, waiting for you. Good. I'll be right over. Marlo, who is Mr. Saxon? A man very close to a lot of trouble, Shelley. Now, look, you wait right here for the law, and in particular, one Lieutenant Ibarra. Tell him nothing but the truth about Horner and what he meant to you in dollars and cents, and you may be all right. But where are you going, Marlo? To a curio shop on West 7th Street to see, among other things, the orange dog of foe. You are the Mr. Horner who called? Yeah, yeah. Also the one who was here this afternoon, you remember? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I, I'm sorry I didn't call you at 10, Mr. Saxon, according to schedule. I hope it hasn't inconvenienced you. No, that's quite all right, Mr. Horner. One moment, sir. Uh. What's the matter? Is anything wrong tonight? You seem on edge, Mr. Saxon. I am. 
So please, Mr. Horner, don't make a single stupid move. What? Wait a minute. Why the gun, Mr. Saxon? I promise not to bite the orange dog. You won't even touch the orange dog. Now, who are you? Oh, we've been all through that. I'm Horner, Saxon. Lou Horner of San Francisco. No, you're not. Horner would have had no reason to wander around curio shops as you did this afternoon, asking any and everybody about the orange dog. Now, once more, who are you? And where is the real Lou Horner? All right, we'll take him in that order. I'm a private detective named Philip Marlowe, and Lou Horner's a corpse. Hmm. But also, I'm a good friend of yours, Saxon, because I'm going to give you a little bit of advice for free. Call it quits, Buster. You're licked. What are you talking about, Marlowe? A tea for treasury man named Slade. Before he died, Saxon, he talked. I see. And believe me, he said enough to put you away till orange dogs are as popular as lifesavers. And what do you say, Saxon? Do we play it smart? Very well, Marlowe. We will play it smart. My kind of smart. Now... Turn around and walk through that curtain there. I want to show you something. Orange dog, maybe? Yes. The orange dog of foe. I want you to see it for yourself before you die. Saxon said die like it already happened. And after he relieved me of the comforting bulge of the gun in my pocket and marched me to a large, windowless room that was a little darker than the lining of an eight ball, he told me to stand very still. And he turned on a single lamp that rested on a large, scarred table. And next to it, an ordinary shipping crate and cushioned on all sides by white wrapping paper, I finally saw the orange dog of full. It was a porcelain lion, pop-eyed, majestic in a crazy way. And also, it was colored orange, bright and clear. But now that I'd seen it, I knew that the next move was Saxon's. I turned to face him. It was then that I noticed the black curtain behind him moved slightly. And long hair quietly stepped into the room. This Mr. Saxon did not know about. Well, Marlowe, now that you have seen the orange dog for your first and last time, what do you think of it? He thinks it's just jet dandy, mister. Now drop your gun before I blow the top of your head off. Go on, drop it. It's better. Now sit down there and stay put. You, Marlowe, get across the room. Okay. Thanks for showing up, Peel, before Saxon here ran out of small jokes. Don't kid yourself, Marlowe. I didn't just show up. I've been right behind you all the way. That's how I work. So what do you want, Peel? A couple of very fine engraved plates that I've been after for six months now. Plates which could be in the orange dog of foe? No place else but. Or did you think that maybe the late Mr. Horner wanted as an ornament? But that's all it is. There are no plates in the orange dog. It is only a collector's item. And you're a liar, Saxon. And I know the best way to prove that. Marlowe. Pick that thing up and toss it against the wall. No, no, don't. I tell you, there's nothing in it. Toss it, Marlowe. Go on. Okay, Peel. Ah. Now we'll see who's right about the plates being hit. Nothing, huh, Peel? Nah. Nothing. All right, Saxon, get up. I want to know where the plates are, so I'm going to count to three. That's how long you have to live if you don't tell me. No, no. Peel, believe me, there are no plates. What? Oh. Hold it, Peel. Wait. Here are the plates. Here. In this jewel box. Look, uh, right here. Under your nose. Is he... Is he out, Marlowe? Yeah, he's out all right. He took the light with him, too. Is there, is there another lamp in here? No, no, there isn't. Nor is there another gun. Why, you stinking little... Wait a minute. Those sirens, Saxon, they're heading this way. Police? Yeah, the Police. 
Looks like sooner or later everybody gets together in the back room at Saxon's, But huh? not everybody stays here, so I'll take this wrapping paper and leave now. Wrapping paper? The stuff that was around the orange dog? Yes, a sample of the best grade of counterfeiting paper made, Marlowe. And that's what Warner was supposed to buy, not plates, those he got a month ago. Still makes you a crook, Saxon, and one will never get past the front door. Oh, no, we'll see about that. Marlowe! Keep shooting, Saxon, in the dark. You got four shots left. You filthy maggot! Only one now, Saxon. That's number six. You're through, Saxon. By the time Ibarra and his boys, plus a half a dozen very anxious T-men, got into the room, Saxon was already coming apart at the seams. After a half hour of steady questioning, he split wide open and led us all to a basement hideout where the team men went wild over a few thousand sheets of A1 counterfeiting paper. But an hour later, after Peel, who admitted murdering Lou Horner, and Saxon, who was ready for the nearest straitjacket, were both in a lockup, there was still the problem of the glib lass from San Francisco. But finally, when Shelley, Lieutenant Ibarra, and I stood under the green light of the globe in front of police headquarters, I knew that the girl who technically was only guilty of withholding information from the police was not going to spend any time in the pokey. Because, after all, I was more or less guilty of the same thing. Besides, Lieutenant Ibarra was still interested in the others. Well, Marlo, it looks like the whole business actually boils down to a single transaction between Clay Saxon, who had the counterfeiting paper, and Lou Horner, who was supposed to buy it. That's right, Ibarra. But Horner, who must have made his contact with Saxon via some middleman in San Francisco... Only had a telephone number and the password, the orange dog of foe, to work on here in L.A. But how do you get hold of that number, Phil? From the message the T-man left before he died. You mean you actually called someone named Marion? No, honey, I just dialed Marion. Hmm? M.A. Madison. R.I.O.N. 7466. Madison 7466. You get it? Yeah. <laughs> Another one of Horner's screwy memory tricks. Like the rubber band on his tenth finger. Hey, that's pretty good, Phil. Ah, it's an old gimmick, really. I read it in a dozen detective stories. What do you know? Maybe I ought to read some of those. (laughs) Well, good night, fella. Look for you tomorrow. Good night, Lieutenant. Well, Shelley, do I, uh, do I show you the way home? No, Marla. Aren't you hungry or thirsty or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guess I am at that. Well, I know just the place for us, darling. Oh? It's a cute little place right smack in the middle of Chinatown. Well, we got through a small Chinese dinner without seeing or hearing from a single orange dog. And when it came time to leave, I was thinking that Shelley wasn't really too bad a kid at that. So when she left the pit table to powder her nose, I started to make plans. But when she got back, I forgot about them because in the meantime, she'd run into an old friend. Yeah, a rich old friend who was all alone in the big city. I said I didn't mind taking a rain check when she explained that he was from Kansas City and a broker at that. He certainly was overweight. Too much steak and potatoes. Hmm. Steak and potatoes. Wonder if Lindy's is still open.
Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore, and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Francis Robinson, Edgar Barrier, Tony Barrett, Lou Krugman, and Ed Begley. Lieutenant Detective Ibarra is played by Jeff Corey. The special music was by Richard Orant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... I was hired to find a blackmailer, and I did. But first I found a badly beaten Adonis, a Jezebel with an accent, and a man who had been an easy mark for murder. Ninety minutes of unsurpassed comedy comes to you every Sunday night when CBS brings you the Spike Jones Show, the Jack Benny Show, and Amos and Andy in succession. Spike Jones and Amos and Andy come to you over most of these same CBS network stations, and Jack Benny comes to you over them all. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, that was The Orange Dog, as originally heard on January the 22nd in 1949 on CBS. And as always, we will have more Philip Marlowe coming up in the weeks ahead. We have to preserve a little time tonight because I have something a little special, I think, coming up after the uh, the comedy corner, so I don't uh, really have time to spend uh, commenting on some of the things I heard, you heard, we heard in that episode. Maybe we'll try to do that next time. I did have one other email that I wanted to read, and this was from a listener. Let me get it here. This is from Thalia N., from Manchester, New Hampshire. She says, Hello, Bob. I love your podcast. I just discovered it after being told about it by a workmate. My papa used to tell me about the great old radio programs he would listen to when he was a child. Now I can see why he was so excited. I want to play him some of your shows, but I'm wondering if there's some way I could find out which old-time radio programs play on each one of your shows. That way, if Papa requests a program, I'll be able to find it for him instead of having to pull up each show individually to see the contents. By the way, I love the sound quality. I guess I always expected old radio programs to be full of scratches, pops, and hisses. The programs you play sound almost brand new. You have a real fan here. Thank you, Bob. Thalia N. from Manchester, New Hampshire. Well, thank you very much, Thalia. I appreciate you... uh, saying those kind things very much. I'm glad you brought this subject up because we want to make it easy for you to find the shows that you want to hear, the programs that you want to hear. What you need to do is go to our website, boomerboulevard.com, and across the top you will see links that will take you to an index. When you go in the index, there's an alphabetical list of the various old-time radio programs. And then right under their title, It gives you all of the individual episodes in chronological order, from the oldest to the newest. And you can just click on the link there, the button, and it will take you to that show, so you can listen to that individual program. 
So thank you very much for bringing that up. And I appreciate you taking the time to write to us. Something familiar. Something familiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. <laughs> This week on the Comedy Corner, we're going back to school. Madison High School, that is, for a really funny episode of Our Miss Brooks that was originally broadcast on CBS on September the 11th in 1955. The name of this episode is Helping Hands. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. Well, the majority of our public schools start their fall semesters tomorrow, but Armis Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School, decided to go back last Friday. At breakfast, her landlady asked the reason. Why are you going down to school this morning, Connie? Oh, I don't know, Mrs. Davis. There are several reasons, I guess. I like to get my desk in order and see that the blackboards are all clean and ready. Uh, besides, I won't be the only teacher at school this morning. A certain biology laboratory has to be put in shape for the coming term, too. Mm, I see. And there's a certain biology teacher going to do the putting in shape? That's right. A certain male biology teacher? Mm-hmm. A certain male biology teacher named Philip Boynton? Whee! <laughs> I might have known. <laughs> you get a different look when you just start thinking of him. A sort of golden light floods your eyes at the mention of his name. It's like somebody stuck a fork into two poached eggs. <laughs> what a pretty thought, Mrs. Davis. But I am fond of the bashful brute. Uh, pass the cream, please. Um, here you are, dear. Thanks. Oh, may I have the sugar, please? Here it is. If only he'd come out of his shell. He's so retiring. He doesn't seem to realize how handsome and charming he is. Now, now, please, Connie, stop thinking about Mr. Boynton. It's preventing you from eating a proper breakfast. What? What makes you say that? You've just drunk a cup of sugar and cream without coffee. <laughs> well, no wonder it tasted so sweet and white. But there's something else that's been on my mind lately. I ran into some teachers the other day, and there's a rumor that some changes are going to be made in our faculty. Oh, nonsense, Connie. These silly rumors start flying around before every new term. Why, down at the ladies' league luncheon the other day, I even heard that Mr. Conklin might be leaving Madison. What? But without Mr. Conklin as our principal, Madison wouldn't be... Well, it just wouldn't be a high school anymore. What would it be? A paradise. <laughs> I mean, who told you about his leaving? Nobody told me. It was just mentioned in passing, along with a lot of other scuttle, uh, if you'll excuse the expression, but. 
What a charming colloque, if you'll excuse the expression, queerism. <laughs> I guess I'll find out more about the situation at school today. Walter Denton's driving me down this morning. Oh, what's wrong with your car? I had a little trouble with the drive shaft yesterday. What happened to it? It fell down an open manhole. <laughs> It was nice of you to pick me up this morning, Walter. It is a labor of love, oh fair one. Besides, I promised to help Harriet Conklin get things straightened out at school. Oh, is Harriet coming in today, too? Yes, ma'am. I'm picking her up on our way down. She always likes to help old Marblehead, I mean, her dad, get things ready before school officially opens. Yes, I know. But how come she isn't driving down with him? There are cars in the repair shop. The bottom of the motor's all ripped up. Seems some idiot left a drive shaft sticking out of an open manhole. <laughs> well, it takes all kinds of drivers to make a world, don't I? Uh, how's Mr. Conklin been acting lately, Walter? Oh, awful. Even for him. Harriet told me yesterday he's been tense and irritable all week long. Well, that's par for the course, isn't it? What do you suppose he's worried about? You got me. All I know is that with the school term starting on Monday, he'll probably make our lives a... Walter. Inferno's the word I had in mind. Well, that's a little cooler. Now, <laughs> uh, here's the house, Miss Brooks. I'll go up on the porch and get Harriet, Miss Brooks. You wait right here. All right, Walter. Tell Harriet to hurry. It's almost a quarter after Boynton. A ten. <laughs> Hi, Walter. You timed it just right. Hi, Harriet. Hello, Mrs. Conklin. Good morning, Walter. It's very sweet of you to call for Harriet like this. It's a labor of love, Mrs. Conklin. Is old Marble... <laughs> Is Mr. Conklin going with us? Well, I don't know if he's quite ready, Walter. Uh, just a moment, I'll call him. Oh, Osgood, do you want to ride down to school? Who's driving? I am, Mr. Conklin. Me, sir. Me, Walter Denton. Me, walk. <laughs> well, it's just as well Daddy's been in a pretty bad mood lately The walk will do him good Okay, let's get started, Harriet See you later, Mrs. Conklin Bye, Mother I'll be back as soon as I help Daddy get Madison organized All right, dear Have they gone? Yes, Osgood Good There's something I'd like to tell you about, my dear Something I wouldn't want blabbed all over town Oh, now, Osgood, that's no way to talk about your own daughter. Harriet never gossips. I was not referring to Harriet. I'm talking about her idiot consort. <laughs> if there ever was a marblehead, it's that boy. <laughs> However, what I wanted you to know is that your husband, Osgood Conklin, principal, may soon be Osgood Conklin, assistant supervisor of schools in this area. No. Well, it's not definite, of course. As a matter of fact, I just read of my predecessor's transfer, but it shouldn't take the board long to pick out his successor. Do you really think you've got a chance, Osgood? Chance? What other principal has a better chance? The job requires tact, charm, diplomacy, and intelligence. <laughs> Do you really think you've got a chance, Osgood? <laughs> I, I, I mean, if you are selected, when will you find out about it? Probably within the next few days. That's why I'm going into school today to clean up my office top to bottom. Never know when the head of the board might drop in. Oh, but that's 
suit you've got on. It's practically in tatters. Well, what do you expect me to wear around dirty desks and dusty files? My frock coat? Now, if you'll excuse me, my dear, I'll trot along to school. Well, don't walk too fast, dear. Remember what Dr. Frank said. While you're on your diet, you mustn't exercise too strenuously. Dr. Frank. It's Dr. Frank's fault that I've got to take off all this weight. What do you mean? Well, if he hadn't cleared up my ulcer three years ago, I'd never have gotten so stout. <laughs> well, well, food isn't everything. Oh, before you go, dear, I'd like to ask a favor. Yes? Lucy Snodgrass phoned a little while ago and told me her washing machine is broken. Naturally, I offered to put her laundry in with ours this afternoon. That should make our laundry very happy. <laughs> what do you want me to do about it? Well, Stretch Snodgrass, Lucy's boy, is coming down to school today to clean up the gym. He'll put the bundle in your office, and I'd like you to bring it home for me. A charming assignment. <laughs> well, I'm leaving, Martha. Uh, you may kiss me now. Thank you, dear. At ease. <laughs> Here we are at school. Dear old Madison. Oh, it's just heavenly to see your ivy-covered walls once again. Steady, girl, steady. <laughs> you know, school isn't so bad when you just volunteer to come. I'd better get right into Daddy's office and start cleaning up. What's your hurry, kids? It's a beautiful day. Why don't we sit out here in the sun together and chat for a while? If you say so, Miss Brooks. Oh, good morning, folks. Mr. Boynton. So long, kids. Come on, you can give me a hand with the closet. You okay, my sweet? Adios, dear teachers. Goodbye, Walter. Well, Miss Brooks, are you all ready to plunge into another school semester? All I've got to do is hold my nose and jump in. <laughs> How about you, Mr. Boynton? Oh, I'm looking forward to it. But I have heard some rather disturbing rumors lately. Rumors? Yes. I heard that there's going to be some kind of a shake-up in the faculty this term. I hope it doesn't affect any of the teachers I know. Like whom, Mr. Boynton? Well, like Mr. DeWitt or Mr. Norman or Miss Enright. Oh. Of course, I didn't mention the one person whose dismissal would affect me the most. And whose is that? <laughs> Mine. <laughs> I couldn't afford to stay out of work for any length of time. It would work a considerable hardship on my family. They'd have to send me even more money than they do now. My goodness. To hear you talk, anyone would think you were some kind of helpless moron instead of a brilliant, handsome, personable, capable scientist. Who, me? Yes, you. That's the way you should consider yourself always. What do you suppose would happen if you lost your job here at Madison? Do you think you'd have to pack your clothes in a bindle and become a hobo? Do you think you'd have to shuffle through life like this, this poor tramp coming toward us? Well, no, but... I should say you wouldn't. Why, you... Oh, excuse me, Mr. Boynton. I just got to give this poor old bum a few cents. Uh, here you are, my good man. Get yourself a bowl of hot soup. No, thanks. <laughs> I just had breakfast. Mr. Conklin? Oh, please forgive me, sir. I, I didn't recognize you in that old suit. 
I am wearing it because I have a lot of cleaning up to do today. Uh, of course, sir. Miss Brooks didn't mean to uh, No, she never does. <laughs> now, if you'll excuse me. Oh, here you are, Daddy. I found this bundle of laundry in your office. Know anything about it? Yes, yes, Harriet. It belongs to Mrs. Snodgrass. I'm taking it home to your mother this afternoon. Now, for heaven's sake, let's get into school and clean out my desk. Yes, Daddy. See you later, folks. All right, Harriet. Did you hear that, Mr. Boynton? He's going in to clean out his desk. And those old clothes he was wearing. And taking laundry home to his wife. He must be the one who's been canned. Uh, dismissed. Seems to add up, all right. Poor Mr. Conklin. How could the board do such a thing? All these years as a principal and suddenly... You know, Mr. Conklin has irritated me on occasion, but if he's actually out of a job, well, it's hard to hate a man when he's down. This may not sound like me, Mr. Boynton, but I'm going to do everything in my power to show Mr. Conklin I'm behind him. What are you going to do, Miss Brooks? I'm going right in and help him clean out that office. <laughs> Well, Miss Brooks was practically convinced last Friday that Mr. Conklin had lost his job as principal of Madison High. But knowing what a proud man he is, she refrained from mentioning it and spent the morning getting her classroom in order for the fall semester. About noon, she and Mr. Boynton headed for Marty's Malt Shop across the street. But tell me, Mr. Boynton, have you confirmed our suspicions about Mr. Conklin's dismissal? No, I haven't. I've been pretty busy getting the lab in shape. Oh, we could be wrong, you know. Well, here's Marty's. Say, isn't that stretched snodgrass behind the soda fountain? Well, yes, it is. Well, since when has Madison's star athlete become a soda jerk? Why not? He's a natural for the job. <laughs> Let's go in, hmm? Mm -hmm. Oh, hello, Stretch. What's the good word? Boy. That's a pretty good word. <laughs> How come you're working here, Stretch? I thought you came down to school to straighten out the gym. Oh, I've done that already. Stretch, I did that. Well, no wonder it looked so neat when I got there. <laughs> I'm just minding this place till Marty gets back. Where's Marty? Well, he's out to lunch. Oh, but I'll take your order, folks. He's out to lunch? What's wrong with the food he serves here? Please, not while I'm ordering. <laughs> oh, the food here's all right, but Marty likes a change once in a while. He's over at Chase and Nini's. It's an Italian restaurant. You know, a pizzerizzerizia. A pizzerizzerizia? Yes, ma'am. They fix veal a certain way he likes it. Scalapini? No, they only charge 40 cents a plate. <laughs> we got a veal cutlet blue plate here today that looks good. Comes with mashed potatoes and lima beans and includes dessert and coffee. Oh, how much does that cost, Stretch? Well, six bits. You think you'd like that, Miss Brooks? Sounds fine, Stretch. Okay. How about you, Mr. Borton? You want some? How much is six bits? Oh, let's live dangerously, Mr. Boynton. Order it first and find out how much six bits is later. Oh, I'll tell you now. Six bits is just three two-bitsers. <laughs> three two-bitsers? Or one two-bitser and one four-bitser. Right, Stretch? That's right. It adds up to 75 cents. I see. Um, how much is the pork chop blue plate? Well, that's 65. He'll I'll take, take that. 
I'll bring them both in two shakes of a lamb. Good. Uh, about Mr. Conklin, if he hasn't lost his job here, I'd feel kind of foolish. Oh, oh, quiet. Quiet, Mr. Wilson. He just came in. Oh, hello there. Getting a bite of blood? Yes, sir. Why don't you join us, Mr. Conklin? Sit right down here. Oh, stretch. Come on right up, folks. Uh, here's your lunch. Oh, hi, Mr. Conklin. I'm pinch-hitting for Marty today. What can I get you? I'll have some cottage cheese. Just a small portion, please. About 15 cents worth. A glass of buttermilk. The five-cent glass. <laughs> Gosh, is that all you're going to eat? In my present condition, that is all I can afford to eat. <laughs> yes, I'll get it for you right away, Mr. Conklin. Say, did you hear that, Miss Brooks? Yes, but it's hard to believe. After all, he's... Well, been... don't wait for me, folks. Dig right in and eat your meat and potatoes. <laughs> Vegetables. <laughs> well, they're nice and hot and delicious. <laughs> I knew it. He's hungry. Move over. He'll bite you in a minute. Hi, everybody. Feeding your assorted faces? <laughs> yeah. Oh, hello, Mr. Conklin. Walter Denton. <laughs> oh, there's room at this table, Walter. Yeah, okay, I'll just help myself to some chow off the steam table. I'll be right over. Hey, Stretch, uh, what's underneath this gooey-looking black barbecue sauce? I don't know, Walter. I'll take it. <laughs> if Denton is coming to this table, I'll sit at the farthest possible end of it. Oh, but, Mr. Conklin... Please, please, I've little enough to eat. I might as well try to enjoy it. Well, here we are. Guess what's under this sauce? A bowl of noodle soup. No, ribs, spare ribs. Oh, boy, what a dish. Hey, mind if I join you folks? I'm going to eat my lunch now, too. Oh, not at all, Stretch. Sit right down here. Well, thanks. First, I'll bring Mr. Conklin his cheese and buttermilk. There. Thank you. No, I'll park me and my hot dogs and sauerkraut and baked beans right over here. No. <laughs> Mr. Boynton, we've got to do something about Mr. Conklin. He sounds like he's famished. Well, maybe we could share some of our lunch with him. Of course. Oh, uh, Mr. Conklin, I've got a tremendous veal cutlet here. Wouldn't you like a piece of it? Uh, no, thank you. Uh, how about a nice pork chop, Mr. Conklin? Can't touch them. Walter, ask Mr. Conklin to have some of your spare ribs. I'm sure he likes those. So do I. <laughs> I can't explain now, but your girlfriend's father's in a very bad way. He can't even afford a square meal. What? Oh, gosh, I didn't know it was that bad. Well, I couldn't stand by and let a dog starve. How about a nice spare rib, Prince? I, I mean, Mr. Cochran. <laughs> Mr. Cochran, want some of my spare ribs, sir? No, thank you. Uh, we just believe in share and share alike, sir. Especially with our principal. You are our principal, aren't you? Well, I... Uh... Oh, Daddy, can you come over to your office right away? Mr. Stone is on the phone. I'll be right there, Harriet. Tell him to hold on one moment. Right, Daddy. Uh, this is the call I've been expecting. Au revoir, my friend. You mean you're leaving, Mr. Conklin? I'll see you all before I go, I'm sure. Remember, everything happens for the best. Then it's true. He's being fired. Even Harriet didn't know about this. We've got to do something. If he's so broke that he can't even order a decent lunch, how's he going to feed his family? Hey, I got an idea. Why don't we do what my mother done? Send laundry over to Mrs. Conklin. <laughs> hey, she's got a washing machine and she could charge so much a bundle. 
We'll call on all our neighbors. I'm sure they'll be glad to help. And we'll help Mrs. Conklin and Harriet do the laundry. That's us. All for one and one for all. In union, there is strength. Old friends are the best friends. Six Semper Soapy Suds. Armist Brooks will return in a moment. Armis Brooks certainly does have her problems, but let's face it, we all do. They may not be as hilarious as hers, but we've got them. For instance, it's not possible for most of us to be at the scene of important happenings in world affairs. Maybe once or twice in a lifetime, Mr. and Mrs. Average Citizen will figure in a newsworthy experience. Beyond that, few of us participate in the world events that make the history books. This makes it impossible for the average man or woman to keep up with world affairs without help. The question of where to go for reliable help has been solved by CBS News. With eyewitness observers all around the globe, men who can fly without notice from their strategically central stations to wherever the news is happening, CBS News has complete coverage day and night throughout the week. You can come and go as you please, plan whatever plans you will, and always be sure that when you want to catch up with history, CBS News will catch you up on its earliest regularly scheduled news program. Solve your problem in keeping up with the news of the world by making CBS Radio your listening post. While due to a series of circumstances, everyone is convinced that Mr. Conklin is about to be fired and is practically destitute. So, in true musketeer spirit, they have rallied to his aid by securing all the laundry business in the neighborhood and bringing it to his house. Oh, it's awfully nice of you to help out like this, but I can't help wondering what Mother will think when she gets back from her shopping trip. It'll be a nice surprise for her, Harriet. We've got enough business here to tide Mr. Conklin over for two weeks. Did you rig up the clothesline in the yard, Mr. Boynton? I did. I also put some up in the living room. We'll need every inch of space we can get. Stretch is still out getting more bundles. I had no idea Daddy was in such dire straits. Oh, but with friends like you, nobody could ever consider themselves poor. A friend in need is a friend indeed. Your problem is our problem. If I've said it once, I've said it twice. Six Emperor Soapy Suds. <laughs> Yeah, so you see, Osgood, the social duties that go with the position of assistant supervisor are most important. Yes, well, that's why I brought you to my home, Mr. Stone. I want you to see for yourself what a charming background for entertaining Mrs. Conklin has furnished. Under my supervision, of course. <laughs> right, uh, right up these steps, if you please. Uh, let's see now, where's that key? Uh, you realize that you'll be called upon to receive city officials as well as many of our most influential PTA members from time to time. Oh, of course, of course. Ah, here we are. Here we are. After you. Oh, thank you. Now, if... Uh, what in the world is this? Sheets and towels hanging everywhere? Is this a laundry room? Laundry room? Where did you, How could you... How you say it does look like something. <laughs> it looks like everybody's laundry. Well, I, I can't understand this. Let's go into my den and I... Uh, Mr. Stone? Mr. Stone? Where are you, Mr. Stone? I'm over here in the underwear department. 
Now, see here, Conklin, just what is the meaning of this? I don't know anything about it, Mr. Stone, but I assure you, sir, that I... Oh, hi, Mr. Conklin. Business is great. Here's four more bundles. Snodgrass? Oh, no time to kibitz with you now. I gotta get some more stuff down the block. Oh, before I go, I'd like to remind you about that bundle my mom sent over. Whatever you do, don't put no starch in my running pants. I gotta bend my legs getting over those hurdles, you know. Wait right here, Mr. Stone. I'll get to the bottom of this at once. What the devil's going on here? Oh, shucks. We wanted to surprise you, surprise sir. Surprise me? Shut that contraption off, Boynton! Yes, sir. Now speak, somebody, and speak quickly. Well, we thought... Shut up! <laughs> Miss Brooks, what are you people doing here? Trying to help make both ends meet, Mr. Conklin. What both ends? Your both ends. <laughs> I mean, I mean, sir... When, when we found out that you were fired, sir, we... Fired? That... I'm up for the most important job of my career. And the president of the Board of Education is standing in my living room right now, up to his neck in underwear. <laughs> well, we only wanted to raise enough money so you could feed your family. Shut up! Miss <laughs> Brooks. While I'm composing myself, I want you to go into that living room and tell Mr. Stone you're completely to blame for this outrage. Me? But how can I... How... I don't care how, just do it. Because if I don't get this promotion, you'll never get me out of your hair. Now, Ma! Yes, sir. Mr. Stone? Yoo-hoo! Mr. Stone? Who's that? Oh, it's me, sir, Miss Brooks. Where are you? I can't seem to see you. Oh, you'd have a better view, sir, if you'd just drop that little flap in front of you. Uh, I'll just walk around. Uh, you really must forgive the appearance of Mr. Conklin's living room, sir. Why must I? Because it's my fault. You see, my washing machine broke down, and Mrs. Conklin was kind enough to let me rinse out my personal things in here. Do you expect me to believe that this laundry is all yours? That's what I hope you'll believe. But there are 24 bed sheets hanging here. I have twin beds. I see. And how do you explain the fact, Miss Brooks, that there are men's pajamas hanging here? Pajamas? Well, uh, I bought them for my hope chest. Sixteen pairs? I got a lot of hope. <laughs> Besides, I like to wear pajamas myself. But these are all different sizes. Well, sometimes I feel smaller than others. <laughs> right now, I could curl up in the cuffs. Look, Mr. Stone, there's no use my trying to deceive a clever man like yourself. I'd better tell the truth. It's about time. You see, we thought Mr. Conklin was about to be can't, about to lose his position as principal at Madison. So in order to help out until he got another job, we started this little laundry business in his home. And who is we, Miss Brooks? Another teacher and some of the students. You mean you felt such an intense loyalty for this man that you all rallied around in his time of need? He looked so hungry. Well, I trust Miss Brooks has cleared this matter up to your complete satisfaction, Mr. Stone. She certainly has, Osgood. As a matter of fact, she's been invaluable in helping me to arrive at a decision about our new assistant supervisor. You mean I'm in? No, Osgood, you're out. Any man who commands such respect and admiration from his colleagues is much too valuable, and he stays just where he is. But, Mr. Oh, Stone, that's I'm... my final word. Stay where you are, Principal Conklin. Good day. 
Well, Miss Brooke. I'm gonna wash that man right out of my hands. Starring E. Martin, Transcribe, was produced and directed by Larry Burns, written by Al Lewis, with the music of Wilbur Hatch. Mr. Conklin was played by Gail Gordon. Others in tonight's cast were Jane Morgan, Dick Crenna, Bob Rockwell, Gloria McMillan, Leonard Smith, Paula Winslow, and Joseph Kearns. Be sure to be with us next week for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. From September the 11th, 1955, that was Our Miss Brooks. name of that episode was Helping Hands. And, of course, it was originally heard on CBS. Such a well-written show. Our Miss Brooks. And, of course, we'll have more episodes of Our Miss Brooks in the weeks ahead. And now, here are Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Bergen, why did you stop the car here? I want to talk to that farmer. Oh, Mr... Oh, you call me? Why, it's Mortimer Snerd. Oh, where, where? Oh, that's me. <laughs> Are there any General Motors dealers around here? Uh, no, no. No, but we got some Chevrolet, Pontiac, Oldsmobile, Buick, and Cadillac dealers, though. And some Chevy and GMC truck dealers, too. <laughs> well, Mortimer, those are all General Motors dealers. No. Well, what do you want to see them all for? Well, I only want to see one for guardian maintenance. Do they make that car, too? No. <laughs> No, that's a service that's available only at General Motors dealer service departments. Oh, I see. Yes. And right now, they're featuring complete lubrications, quality appearance services, brake adjustments, and front-end inspections. It's quality work performed by GM-trained servicemen at a fair price. Well, that makes good sense even to me. <laughs> you know, I was reminded that it was just a year ago last month, I think it was June the 3rd, that Muhammad Ali died. And as a baby boomer, in the world of sports, there was probably no one who was more famous. Now, I am not a fight fan, but I think everybody was interested whenever this man fought. And of course, his personal life uh, sort of marked the struggles of the civil rights movement, of the Vietnam War, and a number of other things that we all lived through back in the 1960s and 1970s. Billy Crystal was a very close personal friend of Muhammad Ali, and he eulogized him at the funeral, the public funeral they had in Louisville last June. I have some excerpts from that. Now, I, I had to trim this down for time, so if you want to hear the whole thing, you can go into YouTube and look up the Billy Crystal uh, eulogy of Muhammad Ali, and you'll find it. So what we're going to do is we're going to play just a, an excerpt from the funeral eulogy that uh, Billy Crystal gave, and then we're going to follow that up with a performance that he gave at uh, Muhammad Ali's retirement party in Los Angeles in 1979. And you'll understand more about it because he talks about it in this eulogy. Anyway, like I said, I'm not a fight fan. I really don't follow the fights at all. But I think everybody was somewhat uh, mesmerized by Muhammad Ali. So anyway, I hope you enjoy Billy Crystal's tribute to Muhammad Ali. Last week, 
When we heard the news, time stopped. There was no war, there were no terrorists, no global catastrophes. The world stopped, took a deep breath, and sighed. Since then, my mind has been racing through my relationship with this amazing man, which is now 42 years that I know him. Every moment I can think of is cherished, and while others can tell you of his accomplishments, he wanted me to speak and tell you of some personal moments that we had together. I met him in 1974. I was just getting started as a stand-up comedian and struggling, but I had one good routine. It was a three-minute conversation between Howard Cosell and Muhammad Ali where I would imitate both of them. Ali had just defeated George Foreman and regained the heavyweight title. Sport Magazine made him the man of the year, and Dick Schapp, a wonderful writer and a great man, was the editor for Sport, and he was going to host this televised dinner honoring Muhammad Ali. So Dick called my agent looking for a comedian who did some sports material. As fate would have it, that comedian was not available. And she wisely said, <laughs> and she wisely said, but listen, I got this young kid and he does this great imitation of Ali and Cosell. He'd be perfect for you. So I don't know why, but Dick said, okay, I'll try him. If he stinks, I can cut him out of the show. I couldn't believe it. My first time on television, and it would be with Ali. I arrived at the Plaza Hotel, the event was jammed. I met Mr. Schapp, who had later become a part of my family. And he said, well, how should I introduce you? Nobody knows who you are. And I said, just say I'm one of Ali's closest and dearest friends. <laughs> and my thought was, I'll get right to the microphone, go into my Howard Cosell, and I'll be fine. And then I nervously moved into the jammed ballroom, and that's when I saw him for the first time in person. It's very hard to describe how much he meant to me. You had to live in his time. It's great to look at clips, and it's amazing that we have them, but to live in his time, watching his fights, experiencing the genius of his talent was absolutely extraordinary. Every one of his fights, was an aura of a Super Bowl. He did things nobody would do. He predicted the round that he would knock somebody out and, and then he would do it. He was funny. He was beautiful. He was the most perfect athlete you ever saw and those were his own words. <laughs> but he was so much more than a fighter as time went on with Bobby Kennedy gone, Martin Luther King gone, Malcolm X gone. Who was there to relate to when Vietnam exploded in our face? There were millions of young men my age, eligible for the draft to a war that we didn't believe in. All of us huddled on the conveyor belt that was rapidly feeding the war machine. But it was Ali who stood up for us by standing up for himself. And after he was stripped of the title, after he was stripped of the title and the right to fight anywhere in the world, he gave speeches at colleges and on television that totally reached me. He seemed as comfortable talking to kings and queens as the lost and unrequited. He never lost his sense of humor, even as he lost everything else. He was always himself, willing to give up everything for what he believed in. And his passionate rhetoric about the life and plight of black people in our country resonated strongly in my house. I grew up in a house that was dedicated to civil rights. My father was a producer of jazz concerts in New York City and was one of the first to integrate bands in the 40s and 50s. Jazz musicians referred to my dad as the Branch Ricky of jazz. My uncle and my family, Jewish people, produced Strange Fruit, 
Billie Holiday's classic song describing the lynching of African Americans in this country. And so I felt him. And now there he was, just a few feet from me. I couldn't stop looking at him. And he seemed to like glow. And he was like in slow motion, his amazing face, smiling and laughing. I was seated a few seats from him on the dais. And in the room were all of these athletes in their individual sports, great ones. Gino Marchetti of the Baltimore Colts, Franco Harris of the Steelers, Archie Griffin, who had won the Heisman from Ohio State, literary legends, Neil Simon, George Plimpton, all on a dais, fawning over Ali, who then looked at me <laughs> with an expression that seemed to say, what is Joel Gray doing here? <laughs> Mr. Schaap introduced me as one of Ali's closest and dearest friends. Two people clapped. <laughs> My wife and the agent. I rose, Ali's still staring at me. I passed right behind him, got to the podium, went right into the Cosell. Hello everyone, Howard Cosell coming to you live from Zaire. Some would pronounce it Zaire, they're wrong. It got big laughs. And then I went into the Ali. Everybody's talking about George Foreman. I want to talk about George Foreman. George Foreman was ugly. He's so slow. George was slow. I come up, voop, voop, voop. And then I have a rope a dope, a rope a dope, George, and I'm still fast at 33 years of age. I'm so fast I can turn up the lights, be in my bed before the room gets dark. <laughs> Howard, I'm announcing tonight that I got new religious beliefs. From now on, I want to be known as Izzy Yiskowitz. I am now an Orthodox Jew. Izzy Yiskowitz, I am the greatest of all time. <laughs> the audience exploded. See, no one had ever done him before. And here he was, a white kid from Long Island, imitating the greatest of all time, and he was loving it. And when I was done, he gave me this big bear hug, and he whispered in my ear, you're my little brother. which is what he always called me until the last time that I saw him. We were always there for each other. If he needed me for something, I was there. He came to anything I asked him to do. My favorite member, perhaps, was 1979. He had just retired, and there was a retirement party at the Forum Los Angeles for Muhammad and 20,000 of his closest friends in Los Angeles. <laughs> I performed a piece that I had created. The, the imitation had grown into a life story. It's called 15 Rounds. And I play him from the age of 18 until he's 36, ready for the rematch with Leon Spinks. I posted it on the internet last week, footage that nobody had ever seen before, of me portraying Ali, doing his life for him, all those years ago in 1979. There were 20,000 people there, but I was doing it only for him. It's one of my favorite performances that I've ever done in my life. I sort of got lost in him. I, 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 I didn't even know where I was at the end of the performance, and suddenly I'm backstage with another heavyweight champion, Richard Pryor. And Pryor is holding on to me, crying, and then I see Ali coming. And he's got a full head of steam, and he's looking only at me, and he nudged Mr. Pryor aside, and he whispered in my ear with a big bear hug, little brother, you made my life better than it was. <laughs> but didn't he make all of our lives a little bit better than they were?
my friends. <clears throat> my friends, only once in a thousand years or so do we get to hear a Mozart or see a Picasso, read a Shakespeare. Ali was one of them. And yet, at his heart, he was still a kid from Louisville who ran with the gods and walked with the crippled and smiled at the foolishness of it all. He is gone, but he will never die. He was my big brother. Thank you. Hello once again, everyone. My name is Howard Cosell. We are awaiting the arrival home of young 18-year-old Cassius Marcellus Clay, the young man who at the recent 1960 Rome Olympiad shocked and amused the world with his boxing ability and braggadocio, if you will. Here he is now, only 18 years of age. Cassius, do you plan to turn professional? Yes, I do, Mr. Cosell. See... Nobody's ever seen nothing like me. So fast, so pretty. I'm so fast, I can play ping pong by myself. And I'm predicting that someday I'm gonna gain 30 pounds and I'm gonna become the heavyweight champion of the world. Sonny Liston is not coming out incredibly young. Cassius Clay, just as he predicted to this reporter four short years ago, has knocked out the man he called the Big Ugly Bear and become the new. Heavyweight champion of the world. I am the greatest. I am the greatest. I am Muhammad Ali. I will never be known as Cassius Clay again. Cassius Clay is a slave's name. I'm now a disciple, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. I'm now a black Muslim minister. I am now Muhammad Ali. In the top of the news today is the eyes of the sports world to focus on Houston, Texas, where heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali, also known as Cassius Clay, is expected to refuse military induction on the grounds of being a religious, conscientious objector. Another news of Vietnam buildup continues. I will not fight in this war. This war is an unjust war. I cannot, will not fight. Step forward when I call your name, please. Cassius Clay. Cassius Clay. Gentlemen, please, I have a brief statement. As Commissioner of the New York State Boxing Association, we are issuing the following proclamation. A few hours ago, heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali, also known as Cassius Clay, refused military induction. We are hereby stripping him of the heavyweight title. Now, 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 now. The State Department is also revoking his passport. Therefore, he will not be licensed to fight any place in the world, including exhibitions. Today, June 20th, 1967, Ali today was convicted of draft evasion, fined $10,000, sentenced to five years in prison. There will be an appeal. For three and a half years, I couldn't fight. My best years, my prime years, my great years. Three and a half years, man. My great years, my good years, 26, 27, 20 and a half, nine years old, you know? But then, out of nowhere, the state of Georgia, 1970, gave me a license to come back and fight Jerry Quarry. Ugly Jerry Quarry. <laughs> I couldn't wait. Only took three rounds. Foo! Knocked that suck out. Then I went into Madison Square Garden against Oscar Bonavina. Ugly, he's awkward, you know, coming at me. Duh, 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 duh. 
15 rounds, I had to go 15 rounds, and I used the left hook, Foo, knock him out. And now Joe Fraser's the champion. I want Joe Fraser. The winner and still heavyweight champion, Joe Fraser. I still think I won. Now I guess I gotta start all over again. Today, vindication. Ali's conviction for draft division today was overturned by the United States Supreme Court by an eight to nothing vote. <laughs> Ali was right. It is indeed an unjust war. Howard, I'm free. I'm free at last. Now I can become heavyweight champion again. Yesterday, an unknown heavyweight from San Diego, California, one Ken Norton, defeated Muhammad Ali, and in so doing, broke the ex-champion's jaw. Ali fighting 11 rounds with a severely damaged mandible. I'm in the hospital now with Ali. His jaws are wired shut. Perhaps poetic justice. <laughs> but more importantly, at the age of 33, have we seen the last of the great one? Muhammad, is this the end for you? No way, Howard. Ain't no way, Howard. Even though I got the jaws all shut, I'm still pretty hard. Ain't I pretty? Even though I got all this stuff hard. You don't think I can come back, huh? Huh? You with that bed too play. You don't think I can come back, huh? When I can come back, all I've got to do is start all over again. George Foreman is down incredibly here in Zaire, Africa. Muhammad Ali at the age of 33 has knocked out a seemingly invincible George Foreman here in the eighth round and become only the second man ever to regain the heavyweight title. An incredible upset. Go sell you, chump. I told you I was the greatest. October 1, 1975. Manila, the Philippines. Pearl of the South Pacific. Ali Frazier, the third time around. Frazier unable to answer the bell for the 15th round. The thriller in Manila. This was not boxing, this was a war. A big piece of Ali remained in that ring. I fought everybody. Everybody that was to fight, I fought. I didn't dug nobody, I was colorful, I predicted the rounds, I was bigger than boxing. My fights are seen all over the world. I fought. I fought ugly Joe Fraser three times. I fought Ken Norton three times and sat through Mandingo twice. I was big in the box. Every place I go, they know me. I go to Bangladesh, they yell Ali. Ali, I go to Africa, they yell Ali Bambaya. I go to Russia, I see Brezhnev in person. Carter can't get him on the phone. <laughs> and at the age of 36, I'm 36 years of age, I'm still pretty. Isn't that something? Not a mark on my face. Isn't that something? 36 years of age, I'm still fast. They say I'm slowing down. You know, they say I'm, I'm so fast, I can turn out the lights in my bedroom, be in the bed before the room gets dark. <laughs> the only thing that could whoop me now is Father Time. It's oh, Young Leon Spinks with only eight professional fights has decision to seemingly aging Muhammad Ali here in Las Vegas. An incredible upset. So much like the young Cassius Clay. 14 years ago in that ring in Miami Beach. The champ is dead. Long live the champ. 
He surprised me that speaks. <laughs> I guess at the age of 36, you know, I couldn't train like I want to train, you know, couldn't do the things in the ring I want to do. Gave that ugly sucker the first seven rounds and tried to come back after him, you know. Just gave away too much, you know. Every time I reached back for that something to knock him out, just wasn't there, you know. Hell, uh, he was so ugly, I figured ain't no way he could beat me. <laughs> oh, Leah. Yeah, they took away his driver's license. He walked into a telephone pole. <laughs> Everybody's saying to me now, they're saying, hey, champ. You must feel bad you ain't chanting more. You, you lost to some kid who looked like a train ran through his face. I say, hey, hey, man, I ain't got nothing to be sorry about. You see, everybody in life suffers a loss, you see. It's the one who can overcome the loss and make a success of himself that's really doing something. As I look back over my career, I was heavyweight champion 14 years ago, man. Ain't that something? 14 years ago. I had a great life. Allah's been good to me. 59 professional fights, made a lot of money, got beautiful kids, great family, got everything to look forward to. But something's eating at me. I don't want to go out losing to no Leon Spinks with eight professional fights. I don't want to be remembered as being out of shape in that ring of Las Vegas. I want him one more time. And I'm gonna do it. I'm 36 years of age, my body's tired, I don't like training very much. But starting tomorrow, I'm getting in shape for that rematch with Leon. Getting up early, I'm gonna run with the moon. I'm gonna start hitting that table and do my push-up, do my sit-ups, gonna take the punch, do whatever I have to do. And I'm gonna run. And I wanna be the first man ever to win the title for the third time. Nobody's ever done anything like that. But then again, nobody's ever done anything quite like me. And I'm predicting that I'm gonna do it. Cause I wanna be the heavyweight champ for the third time. Cause I can do it. And you can do it too. No matter what you was in life, no matter what color, no matter what religion, it's never too late to start all over again. Never forget that. And you'll never forget me. I am the greatest.
right, everybody, once again, it is time to travel to the Old West. We are going to Dodge City, Kansas. The year is 1874, and we are walking along Front Street, shoulder to shoulder with Marshal Matt Dillon. Along the way, we're going to run into Doc and Kitty and Chester and the whole gang on this episode of Gunsmoke. This is a good one. This is really a good one, an outstanding sound quality on this one. This one was originally broadcast on CBS on December 16th, 1956. It features Vic Perrin and Sammy Hill, and I don't know who Sammy Hill is. I don't see any other credits. Sometimes actors and actresses on some of these shows would use different names for reasons I know not. But I don't know if that was the case here but I don't know who Sammy Hill is, but boy, is she good. I love her voice in this. And and the reason I made that earlier comment is her her voice reminds me of some other actress, and I just couldn't put my finger on it. So if you know the story behind Sammy Hill, send me a note, would you, at bob at boomerboulevard.com. By the way, if you like stories with twists and turns, see if you can see the twist that's coming up in this one. All right, well, here we go. This is Cherry Red, as originally heard in December of 56 on Gunsmoke. City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Fresh air in this office. Uh oh. Uh oh. What's the matter, Chester? Oh, my gracious, you got trouble, Mr. Dillon. Leastwise, you're gonna have. That's usually a pretty safe prediction. That red haired Blanchette girl, the one married that no good Slim Adele. That Cherry Odell? She coming here? She sure is, with her eyes a snapping and her curls a flying. Why, she's madder and prettier right now than she's ever been, Mr. Dillon. Huh? Oh, she must have been real insulted. This, look, look out, here she comes. What is it? Marshal Dillon. Uh, morning, Cherry. What kind of a town are you running, Marshal? When a decent married woman can't walk down the street without, without... Without being insulted? Uh, why don't you sit down, Cherry? 
I don't want to sit down. All right. Now, which one of the boys do you want to have me hang this time? Matt, I didn't come here to be laughed at. No, you want somebody thrown in jail. Somebody that made the mistake of paying you a normal human compliment. I'm a married woman. And I'll thank the men in this town to respect me as one. Jerry Slim's been gone for nearly two years now. A lot of people don't think he's ever coming back. Oh, he'll come back all right. Don't you worry none about that. And when he does, these grinning loafers are going to be mighty sorry that they talked out of turn. Like me, ma'am? Oh, you! You've got a nerve coming here. Uh, I reckon I'm the cause of this young lady being all riled up, Marshal. See, I told her I was aiming to marry her. That's what I meant. A complete stranger, right on the street. In broad daylight, if you please. Well, now, Cherry, I doubt if anybody would call that an insult. You think it's funny, don't you? All three of you. Well, maybe if you was me, you wouldn't think so. If you'd waited a year and eight months, not knowing, just hearing stories, lies about your man. Now, Cherry. Oh, I... I don't know why I come here. I don't know why I even fought. Cherry, wait. My. Uh, Marshal, my name's Red Larnard. I'm Matt Dillon. Uh, this is Chester Proudfoot. Howdy. I do. Are you just riding through? I didn't have any actual plans, Marshal, till I came face to face with Mrs. Odell up the street there. Huh? Mrs. Odell? Oh, I knew who she was before I even spoke to her. I ought to. I've been carrying her picture with me for three weeks now. Huh? Where'd you get this? From her husband. After he was dead. Dead? Oh, my goodness. That's what I came to Dodge for, to let her know he was dead. I see. Tell me something. Slim Odell, how did he die? Well, it was engines, renegades up in the Platte River country about a month back. You sure of that? I was there. Me and him was partners on a trap line. They almost got me, too. Uh Uh-huh. Chester. Yes, sir. Hand me that bullet in there back of the desk, will you? Yes, sir. Here you are, Mr. Dillon. I got word of Slim's death, too, Red. A sheriff's bulletin came about three weeks ago. I looked in the post office here. There wasn't any bulletin up. Yeah, I know. I haven't said anything about it, not even to Cherry. Slim Adele was shot to death trying to hold up the North Platte Broken Arrow stagecoach. His partner got away. No name, no description. Marshal... That's why I kept the news to myself. I figured his partner might head for Dodge and try to get Slim's wife to alibi him some way. Now, just a minute, You Marshal. keep your hands right where they are, Red. You're under arrest for attempted robbery and for the murder of two stage line guards. Take his gun, Chester. Red Larnard was a pretty nervy customer. Walking into my office and telling me a lot of lies about Slim O'Dell being killed by Indians. The strangest thing of all about it was that I was sure he knew I wouldn't believe him. But whatever he had in mind, I decided not to take any chances with him. When I told Chester to take his gun, he stepped back a few feet. And for a minute, I thought I was going to have a fight on my hands. Now, wait, Marshal. I reckon we better back up a little here. Get out of the way, Chester. Listen to me, will you? We both made a mistake here. Oh, is that so? 
I came to Dodge for the same reason you kept quiet about that wanted bulletin. I figured Slim O'Dell's partner might make for here to hide out. I thought you said you were his partner, Red. No. No, I'm the man who killed him. I'm a special agent for the Wells Fargo Stage Company. My credentials are in my hip pocket. Here. Yeah, I guess these could be legitimate enough. Marshal, this is Odell's hometown. It's just possible you were friends and you might cover for him. I wasn't sure whose side you'd be on. Well, I'm not on his side, Red. He left here just one jump ahead of arrest. Sit down. Thanks. You were there when Slim and his partner tried to hold up that stage. Huh? Yeah. We were bringing through a load of bullion... Two men had jumped one of our stages the week before. So the company took the regular driver off and put an extra guard in his place. I was riding inside, just the three of us. I see. But Odell and his partner outsmarted us, Marshal. They just came riding out of the brush, one on each side, shot the two guards in the back without saying a word. I dropped Odell. The other man got away. Got a look at him? Just barely. About average height and build. Yeah. Well, he could be a thousand miles away from here, Red. Maybe. But we got nothing else to go on. Truth is, Marshal, I... I reckon I'd have come here on my own after seeing that girl's picture. Uh, Cherry Odell? Mm-hmm. And I thought maybe you were just using her to get to her husband's partner. Tell me, she's still in love with Odell? Maybe. And maybe she just thinks she is. Terry's a born rebel. I always figured she married Slim, mostly to spite her family. They were only together about two months. He tried homesteading until he found that there was work to it. Then he left town with Yancey Kleiber. Kleiber? Ah, he's the partner you're looking for. At least I heard four or five months ago they were still together. I've been watching for him since I got that bulletin, but he hasn't showed yet. Hmm. That... Marshal, I'm a plain man, and I don't know much about women, but I meant just what I told that girl. I'm going to marry her. You shot her husband, Red. That's not going to help. What do you figure she'll do when she hears? Well, knowing her, she'll try to kill you. For you a while ago. Oh? Yeah, I guess he's still over at the jail waiting for you. Now, what's the trouble? Well, I'm not sure, but... Uh, Matt, do you know somebody by the name of Larnard? Red Larnard? Yeah, he just hit town this afternoon. He's here on business. Oh. Why? What about him? Well, Jerry Adele was in here looking for him. In here? Yeah, looking for this Red Larnard, and that's all she'd say, Matt. She was acting half wild. Yeah, she had a run-in with Red earlier this afternoon. Doggone, if the Long Branch ain't getting to be the most law-abiding place in Dodge. 
At least that's where the law abides most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> the law abides most of the time. See, that's how I am, Doc. That's very funny, Oh, Doc. Kitty, you're looking pretty in a young filly in a field of buttercups. Well, thank you. You just watch this old goat, Kitty. The only thing he really thinks is pretty is a bad case of jaundice or a family done with a croup. <laughs> oh, now, Matt, I'll allow you to buy me a drink for that. Just may do that, Doc. Mr. Dillon. Mr. Dillon? Yeah, what is it, Chester? You, you better come quick, and you too, Doc. Why? What's the matter? It's that fellow Red Larnard. They just found him laying back at the liver stable. He's been shot in the back. Easy now. Watch the top step there, Chester. Yes, sir. I got him all right, Mr. Dillon. All right, let's get him in. Stretch him out over here on the table, man. Yeah, all right, Doc. All right, easy, Chester. Yes, sir. I'll, uh, I'll have to cut that shirt to get off his shoulder. Sounds like he's coming too, Doc. Yes, it does. Uh, hand me those scissors, Chester, please. Hey, there. Thank you. Now, let me see. Oh, now, take it easy. Take it easy now, son. Uh, let's have a look at you. Uh -huh. What do you think, Doc? Well, Matt, if it had been a couple of inches lower, a little to the right, I'd have had myself a coroner's fee. As it is, though, I guess he'll probably live. Well, don't sound so disappointed. Uh, hand me those forceps, will you please, Chester? These things? That's right, that's right. Here. Thank you. Can you hear me, Red? Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Now, there's no use fooling you, son. This is going to hurt a little bit. But we've got to get that bullet out. Go ahead. Get it over with. Uh, wait a minute, Doc. Uh, it'll be all right if I ask him a couple of questions first. Sure, Matt, you go ahead. A few minutes won't hurt anything. I, I've got the bleeding stopped. Red, you feel like talking? <laughs> I felt more like it. But it won't do any good anyhow, Marshal. Uh, what do you mean? I went over the stable to get my horse. I was aiming to ride out to Cherry's place. I felt the bullet hit me. And that's all. You didn't see who it was? Huh? No. No, they were behind me. I didn't see anybody at all, Marshal. That's a fact. Don't you believe me? I got no reason not to, Red. If you claim that's what happened, then that's the way it is. That's all I know about it, Marshal. All right, Red. Good luck. Thanks. Go ahead, Doc. Uh, Chester. Yes, sir. Brace yourself now, young fellow. Once we get that bullet out, you'll feel... Chester, uh, go saddle a couple of horses, will you? We'll ride out to Cherries. <laughs> If she ain't here, Mr. Dillon. She's here, all right. Who is it? Who's out there? Matt Dillon, Cherry. Chester's with me. What do you want? Oh, a cup of coffee, maybe. Have a talk with you. Uh, no, no, Matt. 
You can't come in. Oh, why not? Because, because I'm here alone. It's late. It just wouldn't be right. You, you come back tomorrow when it's daylight. Well, I think it's all right, Cherry, since this is more or less official. What do you mean? I hear you were in town earlier tonight looking for Red Leonard. What of it? Well, did you find him? No. No, I didn't find him. What did you want with him, Cherry? That's my business. Well, it might be mine, too, in a way. You know who he is? He's a brute that thinks all he has to do is grin at a girl and he's got her. Oh? And along with it, he's a sneaking, cowardly killer. He is, huh? Red Larnard shot my husband in the back. Didn't even give him a chance. And then Red made up the story that Slim was trying to rob a stagecoach. Made it up, huh? Why did he shoot Slim in the first place, Jerry? Red was trying to hold him up. Slim and Yancey. Slim had $20,000 in gold dust that he took from the diggings at Grady Fork that he'd worked hard for. Marshall, that's where he's been for the last year. Slim Adele working? Sure he was working. All them stories about him was lies. Jerry Slim hasn't been panning gold for the last year. He's been rustling cattle, holding up banks. He and Yancey Clyber together. No. I've tried often enough to tell you he was no good, but you wouldn't believe it. Or at least you wouldn't admit it. Actually, I think you knew. I think you knew it a week after you married him. That's not true. Slim was killed during an attempted hold-up of the stagecoach between North Platte and Broken Arrow. He was shot by a Wells Fargo agent. And not in the back. Yes, he was. Two men were shot in the back, all right. The two guards. Cherry Red Larned as a special agent for Wells Fargo. I, I don't believe Well, it's true. And I got the sheriff's bulletin on the robbery. Now, you've known me for a long time, Cherry. Have you ever known me to lie to you? No. All right. Now, Yancey Clyber told you that wild story, didn't he? No. He's here somewhere, isn't he, Cherry? No, he's not. You, you, you're wrong, Marshal. You know what he did, don't you? He shot Red Larned a half hour ago in town. He shot him in the back, the same as those guards. Oh, no, Matt, no. Has he come back yet? Is he there in the house? No, he's not in the house. He's... He's there at the corner of the porch. You dirty little... You got him in the shoulder, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. Go see to him, Chester. Yes, sir. Oh, Matt, I, I believed him. I was willing to hide him out. It's all right, Cherry. And then for him to sneak into town and kill Red Leonard. I said he shot Red, Cherry. I didn't say he killed him. Red's alive? Ali was lying in Doc's office when we left. Then he's going to be all right? Yeah, I'm sure he is. Uh, maybe I should go see him. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe he should. Do you, do you think he'll be all right? Well, I don't know why not. Oh, uh, uh Cherry, uh, when you see him, you might explain to him that it uh, wasn't you that shot him. He thinks that? Oh, oh, he mustn't think that. He just mustn't. Where's she going, Mr. Dillon? 
How to saddle a horse, I imagine, Chester. To ride into town. My gracious, I just won't never understand women, I guess. <laughs> Chester, you're not alone. <laughs> Now, William Conrad. You know, Christmas on the frontier usually meant just a little more hurrah than usual. And it was far from a time of goodwill toward men. But next week, well, a touch of real Christmas comes to Dodge. And that was the West. Gunsmoke. Produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. The story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Les Crutchfield, with editorial supervision by John Meston. The music was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Sammy Hill, Vic Perrin, and Bill Lolly. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week for another story on Gunsmoke. I love that episode of Gunsmoke. That was Cherry Red. As originally broadcast on CBS December 16th in 56. That featured Sammy Hill, who is a mystery to me, and Vic Perrin, who is always very good. That one was written by, as you just heard, Les Crutchfield, who wrote a number of the later episodes of Gunsmoke. John Meston stayed in control as far as uh, supervising the scripts, but he had already gone over to television, so that's where he was spending most of his time. As always, we'll have another episode of Gunsmoke next week. When are you going to get that squeaky chair of yours fixed? My gosh, it's driving me crazy. Oh, yeah. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to get it fixed by next time. Well, Chester is trying to tell me that we are all out of time. So with that, I will pick up all of our shows and carry them back into the vault. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. 
We'll be back in two weeks. We'll do it all over again with a whole new slate of shows. All right, everybody, this is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me. May God bless and keep you always And may your wishes all come true May you always do for others And let others do for you May you build a ladder to the stars And climb on every run And may you stay Forever young Forever young Forever young May you stay Forever young May you grow up to be righteous And may you grow up to be true And may you always know the truth And see the light surrounding you May you always be courageous Stand upright and be strong May you stay Forever young